3: plushcare.com slash weight loss. by roll VT. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Reddy, but my friends call me Spanners. So, let's be friends. The off-season is getting settled in now, but the news ticker has not stopped ticking. Ferrari kick off our news this week. There's a change at the very top as they confirm the departure or resignation of Mattia Bernotto. And We'll talk about the proposed success ballast from Ross Braun that might be introduced from 2026, where the lead cars might get nerfed with jars of jelly and marmalade thrown in front of them to slow them down Uh, we'll be talking about whether the top single series junior the top single seater junior series cars should be adapted for women drivers and is there a chance that williams could be in the ascendancy from here on in with their new owners and a new driver we are an independent podcast though produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves we aim to bring you a race review before your monday morning commute We might be wrong, but we're first. I'm joined from America Land by Matt Rumpets. How's your off-season so far, Matt?
0: Nothing new under the sun, is what I would say to that.
3: Oh, are you going to give us... Oh, twas ever thus. Ferrari again on their cycle of boom and bust.
0: Active (laughs) Arrow. Nothing is new in Formula One.
3: Maybe. Uh, But what is new to this planet is very young map baby, Chris Stevens. Hello, Chris. Hey, Spanners. Map baby. I've been doing this for about six or seven years now. No, but when you started, I think you were 17. So I think you'll always be the missed apex baby, even though we've got three younger panelists than you now.
1: Yeah, probably.
3: Mm, sorry about that. And on the very other end of the scale, no offence, is our video producer, Uncle Steve from Australia. Hey, hey, Steve.
2: Hey, Spanners. Uh, I'm looking forward to being aerodynamically disadvantaged for a totally fatuous PR reason. Oh, okay,
3: but look, uh, look actually, uh, we are going to get to that, but... I realize you're going to come in with a very different perspective because I think Matt wasn't actively watching F1 in the 80s in the same way I was quite young in the 80s and Chris didn't exist at all in the 80s. So you're probably going to be the one to give us that really good insight into what it was like the last time there was there was actually active suspension on Formula 1 cars and with the sort of roller coaster Williams. Uh, but I think the the place to start with actually Steve is Ferrari, what do you make of the change at the top with Matteo Bonotto apparently resigning? That's the official line. They have parted company.
2: Yeah, well, I don't understand the thinking behind this. Um, sure, they didn't win the championship, but this year they won four, they got 12 poles, they had 20 podiums, they were second in both championships, and that's better than uh, the year before, for sure. Uh, in the- 2020, they had a really bad engine, you know, power unit. This year, the power unit, you know, at the start of the season particularly, uh, was very good. Sure, they didn't develop it, you know, for whatever reason, didn't develop it as well as Red Bull. But they did reasonably well, I thought. And to suddenly get rid of Bonotto now, when I think that he's probably sitting on the edge of it takes time to put together the team yeah. and the and the infrastructure and the, the, the sort of corporate mentality to make a winning team and i think he yeah. was sitting right on the edge of it and anybody else would have seen that but i i guess it's you know matter that management didn't have any uh, confidence in him I, I, I wonder
3: if the early success of the season built up expectations to the point where the fall off made his departure Inevitable. So I'm wondering whether had they made a more modest start and then picked up those four wins mid-season as this, you know, third place team and then, you know, and then overcame Mercedes for, for second place. He might be seen, you know, as a bit of a hero now and Ferrari being seen in the ascendancy, but it was such a dramatic fall from title contention.
2: Yeah, it certainly was. And I think that you, you may be right. If they hadn't started quite so strong, then perhaps it would be seen differently at the end of the season. But unfortunately, he's gone. Chris Stevens. I'm inclined to disagree with that slightly because
1: Ferrari practically gave up on the World Championship five races in because there were already reports of and quotes from the higher up saying, well, we've done what we, you know, targeted for, which was to improve on last season and have a race winning car. That's good enough for us. It's almost as if they just gave up on this idea of fighting for the world championship pretty early on. And I don't know how much longer Ferrari can go on like this by just replacing <laughs> the guys at the top because they've been shedding through team principles over the last. 10 years or so between Stefano Di Manicali, uh, uh, uh Riva Bene, uh, Marco Mattiacci, that was one I was trying to think of. And then of course, um uh, Mattia Benotto now, and whoever comes next, they've really been burning through them. And there is clearly a more systemic issue at Ferrari that is stopping them winning world championships. In that time, we've had all these team principal changes. They finished second in the championship quite a lot. And I think we realised that this season, their core issue was the operational and the strategic side of things because they kept making mistake after mistake after mistake. If you take out the, the sort of tail end of the season where they had to dim the power down quite dramatically for reliability reasons, the operational side of things has been their key weakness. That's where they need to be making changes.
3: Another general, Matt, disposed of essentially the the the, the, the team principal if you like at ferrari i don't think is isn't the the real kind of power there's a, there's a power behind the power you sense with mercedes that toto wolf really is kind of you know the the top guy i think there's a more transparent power structure at, at red bull but really that team revolves around christian horner whereas yeah it's it's kind of um it's kind of a dispensable position isn't it to be ferrari team principal
0: Well, it's interesting to remember that Benato was not just the team principal, but also their chief technical officer. Mm. And the thing uh, in in looking at this topic, the thing that I was reminded of was that uh, Benado is not a creature of the current management, John Alcan and Benedetto Vigna. Instead, he came on with uh, Camilleri, who departed in 2020. So there may be some aspect of it's not our guy. In the shop in the sense that he was a holdover from a previous regime uh, yeah. but that said uh, I, I tend to agree with chris i mean they fixed they found and fixed the problem with the power unit before the end of the season they showed up to brand new regulations with a race winning car one of only two teams to do that and it was a clear step forward uh from last season red bull was the other one of course you're away george
3: russell's win showed up with oh okay fair enough showed sp- up with. yeah yeah no. you're right there and also you you kind of think well okay it, it's an unsuccessful campaign but Bonotto didn't preside over the the alleged fuel gate problems the the last Ferrari failure if you like was Vettel not really taking that challenge in 2017 and 2018 all the way to to the line but that wasn't Bonotto Bonotto came in After that, and he's been on this recovery curve, and like Steve was saying, it seems weird to to be dumping a team principal when they're essentially still on the up.
0: Yeah, so basically P six, P3, P2, hey, let's fire him.
3: Yeah. That's good point.
1: It's mad when you look at it like that, Chris. What what has been quite a significant change in the way the team has run since Arriva Bene, who quite famously ruled with an iron fist? Yes. And there was very much the blame culture at the team back then, which they seem to have moved yeah. away from now. So the fact that that team is making progress and they decide to make such a big change um, like this does seem crazy to me.
3: So Mattia Bonotto on the outside seems quite nice and he seems like his loyalty to his crew is is very high. I mean, he's defended the indefensible at times. He's made some, you know, really when we've seen what's happened and then he's gone, oh, no, 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 that wasn't a mistake at all. There was simply a, a, a dog with a fluffy tail that distracted the engineers. And then even like when Mercedes made one strategic error, he came out and said, well, how come they don't get the same level of of grief and abuse for strategic errors as we do for consistently doing it over many seasons. So he's very clearly quite loyal to his his team and his crew. But I do wonder whether he's kind of almost too inbuilt into the system. He's been promoted from within and say, for example, in a military regiment, if you go from corporal to sergeant, a lot of times you'll get promoted out of your regiment because the, the grunts on the ground see you as, you know, one of the guys. And what you really need to do is come in from the outside, Chris, and be like, okay, I'm the, the new sheriff in town. Maybe Bonotto didn't really get to, to do that, to be that.
1: Well, who is the first name associated as his replacement? Fred Vasseur, who runs an incredible operation at the Sauber uh, team, the Salba group uh, in general and he would be a fantastic
2: replacement for Bonotto, I think. I I think that uh, Bonotto was trying to take a leaf out of Toto Wolff's kind of uh, management style. I I think he was trying to get people, you know, no blame. It's an inclusion, um, you know, kind of an atmosphere at the team. But Ferrari has never been run that way. It's always been you know an upfront kind of italian loud <laughs> team that talks with its hands if you know what i mean yeah where where is uh, its
3: heart on its mouth exactly
2: yes um, and i i think that he was so different from all of the others that it made Elkin and Vinya feel uncomfortable because you know the their uh, children of that
3: kind of you know loud uh, italian management style uh, just say those names for me again and explain who those individuals are
2: Oh, well, um, Elkin is the chairman of Ferrari, um, and Vigne is the CEO, I I believe. Okay, we don't hear a
3: lot from them or or see a lot from them.
2: No, except when they're interfering in, you know, their team.
0: Well, yeah, completely. And the question to be asked here is, are we going to see a reversion to the Ferrari mean with a new team principal coming in, or whether the person coming in will continue to sort of shepherd the changes that Bonato has started all the way to bear fruit and based on that you will see success or failure i predict
1: well who just retired from working in formula one it can't be ross braun surely, ross Bra- no, surely. No, it, won't be. No it won't be ross braun <laughs> but wouldn't that be uh that'd be quite something wouldn't it a return to the glory days and of course john todd he's not you know doing anything at the fia anymore he's available <laughs>
0: You have a memory. Did, was he not mentioned in, in, in regards to a consultancy there?
2: Uh, maybe he was. Uncle Steve? i have to look that up. Oh, no, I was just going to say, yes, He's he's got a consultancy role with Ferrari as far as I knew, although how much consulting he does, no one has any idea.
3: So I think with with any other team, you'd go, oh, it's a conflict of interest, all these people who've come from the FIA now going back into Ferrari. I'm, I'm sort of not worried because... Ferrari this there you're right there is something kind of systemic and I very much doubt that getting rid of Bonotto is going to cure that and at the beginning of the season as as someone who has quite openly in a sporting sense quote unquote hated Ferrari as the pantomime villain I, I was quite pleased for them to have like a proper resurgence be winning races be challenging for the title because what kind of Death Star are they are they without challenging for the title? I, I almost wanted them to win a title so I could have a, a reason a reason to hate them again, Chris.
1: Well, I know it's like the cliche at this point, but I think everybody enjoys seeing Ferrari do well. Because every kid who enjoys Formula One or cars in general has a post of a Ferrari on their bedroom wall. And it's the most iconic racing brand in the world and I think when Ferrari does well it's great for Formula 1
2: I think um, people who are new to the sport have got to kind of uh, understand that before 2000 when they started winning again there had been a roughly 20 year period where Ferrari were nowhere they were You know, running down near the bottom of the field, I think the best that they had in that 20 years, I think, was a third-place position on the Constructors' Championship. So having them at the top of the field is not, you know, one of the historic things of Formula One. It's something that has happened in the last 10 or 15 years.
3: I wonder if there's an American equivalent to this, but they are kind of like the Liverpool football club of formula 1 in that they do well enough you know for for eras to inspire a, a generation of fans to be their fans so a lot of kids my age are liverpool fans because they were dominant in the 80s and then there was like 20 years of just abject misery before they came back to the top again and i think there's also there's a lot of ferrari fans from the schumacher era as well who have just been long suffering since since those glory days came to an end and having to endure massa raikkonen and the alonso failed years the, the aborted vettel attempt and and kind of the the non it's it's like a a failure to launch really this leclerc era so there's a, a generation of uh, ferrari fans just waiting for that glory and success again. Um, But I'm sure there's an equivalent in American sports as well. Is there a a sleeping giant?
0: Uh, Well, there are multiple equivalents. Uh, Boston waited forever for a championship. The New York Mets are famously either successful or miserable in failure. So, so, yeah, we we have our fair share of teams like that.
3: Uh, One of the interesting names that was, was touted, which I very much doubt there's any legs to, I think we're all very much married to the Fred Vasseur rumours Uh, but Christian Horner was a name that for some reason was being floated around now I don't I don't think that that would happen but would that be a good move for Christian Horner if you want to say oh Steve say no but if you think like reputationally a lot of drivers have thought I'm going to go to Ferrari I'm going to fix Ferrari and I'm going to be the, the one you know I'm going to be the next Schumacher could Horner get his reputation as a miracle worker by going and doing it at Ferrari
1: well, of course, the number one sort of complaint about uh, multiple drivers' champions is that they tend to do it with one team. Yes, yeah. And they say, oh, you have to do it with another team to prove that you're actually amazing. Should uh, should we apply <laughs> the same thing to team principles? Yeah,
3: Horner, you're, absolute, you're nothing, Christian Horner, unless you go and win yeah. a title with Ferrari.
1: Exactly. Your five world titles mean absolutely <laughs> yeah, nothing. Six? Six, yeah, six. Five, no, constructors,
3: six, five. Six driver and five constructors. Yeah. Uncle Steve. I think the only reason
2: that uh, Horner would go to Ferrari is to escape the uncertainty of, about the future of Red Bull that's going to happen in yeah. the, you know, the next few years. I, I,
3: I really think that uh, that would be a good move for him, actually. Okay, well, obviously, we've not we've not talked about this on the show, and obviously, with the passing of uh, Dieter Maschitz, um and I really hope I've said that name correctly, that does put a little bit of... of of doubt into the the ongoing funding of Formula One because it was very much his child, and I believe it was a kind of a 50 fifty split uh, with uh, with an, another owner at Red Bull. you can tell i I don't read like inside business or whatever, but I don't think the other party at Red Bull had a particular interest in funding formula one
1: Chris? but uh, Matt's re- replacements at the top of the um, the top of the Red Bull hierarchy is three different people. Right. And we often see this, you get one figure who's so powerful and influential within the, the company and they do so much that when they go for whatever reason, um, then they need to get multiple people to kind of plug all the holes that they were filling. And then that's what's happening at Red Bull. I think it would be stupid to assume that nothing is going to change because Matic was so influential in, uh, you know, not just Red Bull's Formula One team, but all the sort of extreme sports they do. In general, because it is just an advertising and marketing campaign for Red Bull. Yeah. Uh, so I do definitely think there is going to be some kind of change um, about uh, about about the team, and of course Red Bull
3: Powertrains as well and Red Bull Technologies. <laughs> Red Bull Powertrains. Okay. No, no. I'll, I'll hold my sniggers till the end. <laughs>
2: Look, I, I think. Um, I've done a little bit of reading about what might happen to Red Bull as a result. None of the three that uh, have I've stepped in to replace Matisic, except for his son perhaps, and even he doesn't have a, a big interest, are really Formula One fans. The other thing that is interesting to note is that uh, the Thai side of the business, the Thai family, uh, now have that uh, now have fifty two percent of the shares so that they can do what they like right. whenever they like and the other thing is the one difference between f1 and all the other sports that Red Bull are involved in is that in all of those other sports, Red Bull are sponsors they don 't own the team in Formula One they own the team and that has all of the baggage that goes with owning a team and running a team and the people the three people that are now running Red bull. Uh, come from marketing backgrounds primarily and they may have the, uh, you know, the the thing of we can get just as much advantage in terms of marketing by just being a major sponsor to a team and we yeah. don't have to go through the political garbage <laughs> of actually running one and owning one.
3: And I wonder, Matt, whether, whether actually all the stuff with the cost cap and the kind of, a slightly mucky 2021 campaign if you are in marketing or owning that business you go well yeah like steve says we could just be the fun sponsor put on all those events and not have to go through the politics of it you know so you know, did, did the negative press or will the negative press have an impact on the decisions of the red bull board
0: um only to the extent that the people doing the marketing can manage it uh, can manage it can measure it Um, So if I'm a marketer, I'm interested in people's eyeballs looking at my thing. Formula One is owned by them because it is amongst the most efficient and widely viewed platform on a global basis. So if you look at like, for example, Mercedes, they'll talk about, you know, like how much brand exposure and what that converts to in terms of dollars or euros or pounds or whatever you're measuring in. And so that's what uh, Red Bull will be looking at. What are we what do we think we're getting back out of this? And only to the extent they can look at polling about their brand and say people think less of our brand because of these controversies. Will they even be the least bit concerned about it? Chris.
1: Of course, as long as they're still making money out of Formula 1, then it should be all good. And I think Red Bull is actually one of the few teams that regularly at least breaks even or even turns a profit at the end of the year um, most of the time. What is crucial to remember is Dietrich Mateschitz was described as the most influential man in Formula 1 because under his wing, he had two teams, Mm -hmm. a Grand Prix and a fleet of young drivers. That would be a huge hole to fill
3: if Red Bull decided to pull the plug. A flock of Red Bull junior drivers. Steve? I agree with what they've said about you know Red Bull,
2: um, you know gaining advantage from their uh, involvement in Formula One, but they may may maintain exactly the same advantage without having to own mm. a team. Now, Matt, you said that they're one of the few teams that actually make a profit. Where do they make a profit from? They they don't have the huge swathe of. Um, uh, sponsors like mclaren perhaps has so so where do they i mean they have oracle and they have a couple of other you know reasonable ones but whereabouts do they get their sponsorship money from i'd suggest that most of the money that goes into red bull is actually you know red bull Spence. promotional money not yeah. sponsorship that was so my understanding as right well man. Yeah. yeah
0: well if you count red bull well, Red Bull will look at the money they spend and then look at the return on it. Uh, so, yes, if I spent, so just in marketing terms, if I spend yeah. $100 million and I get $400 million worth of TV visibility out of it, that, that's a decent return on my money. That's an example, not an actual figure. So, So I think from Red Bull's point of view, that's what they're looking at. And as long as the team can argue, they get more out of owning the team, more exposure out of owning the team than they would as a sponsor, then as long as they can make that argument with, uh, you know, with, with figures and Mm. data, then, then it's set. But don't forget, Red Bull also operate a technology center that does things that aren't just F1. And much like Williams, I suspect they make a fair piece of money doing projects for other people and selling off intellectual property that they don't need for Formula One as well.
3: Uh, the patrons in the live chat, Steve, just pointing out that the cost cap will make the team more profitable. Mercedes reported to be turning a profit of 60 million from the racing team might be similar for Red Bull. And I do wonder if the team kind of considers the revenue from Red Bull to be to be income in some sort of strange way. And as, and as long as Red Bull are... Yeah, like Matt says, getting value out of that investment, I guess the books can kind of still balance like that. I know, I know it seems weird that it's like your parents giving you money and you considering that income, I guess.
2: Um, sure. Um, but if you can get the same value, you know... <laughs> Okay. Uh, we spent 100 million dollars um uh, you know as the sponsor of a team and we get our 400 million dollars back you know oh. in, as a return but we don't have to go through the garbage of running a team putting up with the you know the, the bad the bad media that people like um Horner and <laughs> And Marco,
3: I've got no strong opinions on on that at all. Uh, But yes, uh, someone here in the chat room, Stuart, is saying Oracle sponsorship is worth 500 million. And I think we're kind of getting in. Well, that's quite a lot, isn't it? We're getting into the. I think we're getting to the edge of our kind of knowledge on that particular subject. But actually, I really appreciate you sending us down that path, Steve, because that is interesting. But where it leads us back to is yes perhaps horner doesn't know exactly where his job is and to me he has certainly seemed like a different person a different team principal since 2021 so we don't know kind of what pressures and what strains he has been under because he has been absolutely just ferocious it, it's a it's a change from the sebastian vettel era christian horner for sure and and i think it it coincides a little bit with him becoming a a drive-to-survive Netflix star also. So maybe it's a... We, we don't know the pressures of being that famous and that in the spotlight. There definitely has been a change in the outward persona of Christian Horner. So so maybe there is a lot of pressure going on behind the behind the scenes, and he would like another challenge and to enhance his reputation. One thing is for sure, I don't think we can really argue this too much, is that he does seem like a very good person at running a formula one team or a racing team in general so ferrari could do worse than throw a lot of money at a christian horner type and say right you bring your six drivers titles and five constructors titles worth of experience we'll give you the full keys to the castle at at marinello do your thing it it would be a good move for ferrari i think it is hard to argue that that is not a good team principal when he's won championships over two eras with, with a big gap in the middle. That's, that's beyond fluke, Chris.
1: Yeah, I mean, for sure. And uh, he's certainly proved himself over the years. Remember, there were a lot of people when he and Red Bull first arrived, they were thinking, well, you've got this effectively a child in there i think i can't remember how old he was but he was the youngest team principal in formula one at the time and everyone said well there's no experience he's just a failed racing driver and uh couldn't uh couldn't possibly run this team mm. and uh of course red bull were the party team at the time no one really took them seriously until 2009 when they suddenly showed up and started winning races
3: yeah and so nearly nearly won that title as well okay well look uh well, well we'll certainly keep an eye on the ferrari's vacant seat and see who gets crowned the new general of the Death Star. That's mad, isn't it? I know there's uh, yeah some newer fans there going, how are, how are Ferrari the Death Star? Surely Mercedes are the Death Star? It's an argument for another day. But when teams are successful, should we hold them back? Should there be some kind of in-season ballast? Well, there is, because you get less wind tunnel time. If you win a championship, so Red Bull will get the least wind tunnel time, plus, of course, their penalty for breaching the cost cap. And then Ferrari will get the the second least amount of wind tunnel time, then Mercedes and so on. So we do have some success ballast in Formula One as well. But I think the whole F1 community was taken a little bit by surprise by an article in, I think I saw it in the race.com and in Autosport. So widely reported that uh, Ross Braun was talking about Active aero in 2026, nerfing, is that a common term, handicapping, um, adding some 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 disadvantage to, to cars during a race if they're leading a race in order to hold them back. So active aero, I can only think this means either a reduction in wings or, or, or uh, an increase in drag in real time from race control. Do they, do they press a button and then suddenly a big sale goes up on Verstappen's car and allows the rest of the pack to catch up. And when they do catch up, presumably that disadvantage gets taken away and they get to drive off again into the distance. I think it's fair to say that this news did not go down very well. I'm struggling to find anybody who had anything good to say about it. So my panel, Active Aero, for a start, that's one topic, but I think that the core principle of it is, should there be something in the race where you can make it harder for a lead car, like in a video game, like in Porsche Challenge on PS1 in 1997, should there be something in, in the race that race control can do to slow down a leading car?
0: Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact...
1: It sounds fraught with difficulty. How on earth you would even begin to implement that into a race so that it automatically, say, in the corners, takes away the downforce, and then yeah. on the straights, it adds more downforce oh, yeah. on to slow them down. Of yeah. course, there are a lot mm. of other ideas like this in other championships. The British Touring Car Championship has a, well, used to have a success ballast, and now it has a hybrid uh, boost reduction there are gt championships that use uh success time penalties um which are all uh, sort of quite plastic for formula one i think and you know i don't like drs already i'm not a huge fan of it i kind of accept that it's a necessity in modern um formula one which seems to be having just endless issues with actually making the racing exciting because they keep Feeling the need to come up with ideas like this, so I'm really not sure where I stand. If they could implement it, so that you know, drivers wouldn't want to be leading a race, for example. If it was you know like an oval race, for like the Indy 500, you don't want to be leading the Indy 500 normally because you use more fuel and you don't have a slipstream, and so you're more encouraged to leave it to the last possible moment to make a break for it would that result in more exciting racing or would it just result in people not wanting to race each other?
3: Wow. Lots one pack from Chris's comment there. Yeah. I was trying to decide, would you strip aero to make it harder in the corners or add drag? But yeah, they could do both. If they've got buttons, they can sit and do both. And I didn't even think about the fuel. If you're adding a sail to the front car, obviously he's going to use more fuel. Matt?
0: Well, I mean, far be it for me to point out that Formula One actually already does this with DRS. If I'm the leading car, I don't get to use DRS. But if I'm catching you and I get close enough, I do indeed okay. get to use DRS. So already, yeah. a leading car is handicapped by not being able no. to use active aerodynamics.
3: Okay, let's see what Steve says on that, because I slightly want to caveat that.
2: Yeah, well, uh, my uh, point is that in that situation, the lead car is not being physically disadvantaged sure the car behind has oh. been giving a little been given a little you know boost to try and catch up to the uh, uh, leading car but the leading car is not being physically held back mm. and i think that's just a crazy thing i mean on behalf of most of the fans we well. joined to watch uh, formula 1 because it was the highest grade you know of, of technology available with four wheels on it that went fast. Yeah. And I think that we should be finding ways to help those that aren't going quite as fast rather than looking for ways to impede those that
3: are going fast. with, With respect to Matt's point there, DRS isn't about closing the field up. DRS is about solving the specific issue that overtaking was becoming harder as the aerodynamics increased. So, the DRS helps a car that's already fast enough to catch up and, and and keep up, make that pass and overtake. DRS won't help with Verstappen 30, 30 seconds down the road. So I think there is a, a slight difference. But yes, we effectively have active aero to manipulate a situation in the sport. Uh, but Chris, but first, let's get Matt to kind of de- defend his point, if you like.
0: Well, I'll happily defend my point by going slightly historical. As we all are quite well aware, uh, the FIA has actually had active aero before. And it was the height, according to people who study the technical stuff, it was the height of technical development of Formula One cars because they banned it. And afterwards, you know, road cars have it. We don't in Formula One. But I will just simply pose a trivia question. Do you know the lap time loss when they simply took away active aerodynamics?
3: 85
2: seconds.
1: It was something ridiculous, Steve like two or three seconds right. of that,
2: wasn't it? Steve? F- four seconds. Yeah, it, was four, it was four seconds, and that was four in 1994. Yeah, when so, they ended after ninety-four.
0: So if we gave the teams active aerodynamics, but said that if you are in the lead, you don't get to use them anymore, you've solved that problem with, I mean, you have sim- simply said, much like DRS, you don't have a tool you can use to go faster but we're not going to make you any slower than the actual rest of the car that you have designed.
1: Okay, but that is is not like a copy and paste of what we had in 1994. No. That was when teams were developing how to make their cars go as quick as possible using the latest technologies available. And if it weren't banned by the FIA, they would still be using it. We're talking about hindering a car for doing well. And let's be honest, DRS in itself is already at most circuits so overpowered That there is no skill in overtaking at certain tracks. All you do is you sit, press a button, and let the technology do the work for you, which is exactly why they banned active error because it just took away any amount of skill. You just put your right foot down and went as fast
0: as possible. And now you want to hamper the car in front as well? You don't want to advantage the car in front, first of all. Second of all, I know we are talking about it like success ballast and hindering the car in front. But the fact of the matter is this is a reporter who asked Ross Braun a question about active arrow. And he mentioned all the possible things (laughs) that could be done with it. This being amongst them and particularly headline worthy because here we are sitting talking about it. Mm -hmm. But last of all, they actually banned active arrow one because they deemed it a, you know, a movable aerodynamic device. And let's be clear. The arrow we're talking about here was simply ride height control why is that interesting? Because that would stop porpoising pretty much entirely and make the cars more raceable and the, with this current aerodynamic um, uh, regulation set.
3: Uh, just to stop you on that point, because it's really techie, just because just some people will be thinking, how? So I'm, okay. I'm imagining that basically in the corners you'd be as low as possible, uh, whereas on the straight you could give yourself a little bit of lift to get rid of the ground effect, so raise up a bit?
0: Well, it… The way Williams used it back in the 90s was essentially like that. They would lower the rear on the straights to, to do the same thing that our flexi rear wings do now. You know, they would bend yeah. backwards, stall the rear wing, reduce drag. And then they would lower the nose to get better traction in the corners. Right. But what they would also do is they would counter pitch and roll around corners so that your aerodynamic platform was always stable. Now, this is something Mercedes tried to recreate with its Frick system and did a pretty good job of. And and essentially teams had been trying to recreate that ability. And it got to the point with Williams where they could actually dial out under and oversteer in the track at certain spots for the drivers. <laughs> the the system became so sophisticated, but it was deemed a safety hazard ultimately because there were several big crashes in 94. And um and so they they called it movable aerodynamics and got rid of it.
3: I forgot it was in the 90s, Steve. I thought it was in the 80s. This is what I was talking oh, they, about.
2: They started in the 80s. Ah, they okay, started yeah.
3: using it, but it, it got to its pinnacle. Wait, wait, wait. And, wait. Hang on. history. What? Give us a history lesson, Uncle Steve. Was it just Williams oh. using that old active aero? Oh, no, I, I think it was Lotus that started um,
2: in the mid-80s. Ooh, yes.
0: 77 was when they first started. The oh, computer. really? That,
2: that far back? Okay. Yep. No, I thought it was sort of 84 or something like that that they started. But they were developing those systems through the 80s. And it got to its pinnacle in the, in ninety four and what was what was developing was the use of computers to actually control all this stuff um, in ninety four The reason it was so successful for Williams and they won most of the races that year, and the racing was really very boring was because they had got the system to the point where they could pre program The rise and fall and the pitch and yaw of the floor of the car for each corner. And they had an engineer sitting there so that if the driver said, oh, I need a little bit more going into corner five, they just dialed in a bit more for corner five. The driver didn't have to do anything except put his foot down as hard as he could and use the brake as little as he could. Uh, and he had a stable platform all the way around, and they Williams was so far ahead uh, in '94 that everybody else was, you know, got quite upset, and so they banned it, not because it wasn't successful, but because no one else could get to that level.
3: Yeah, and a lot of times in Formula One, they they nerf stuff because it, it, they go right, well, that's going to spiral costs. So I think that's always been a consideration. You go, well, yes, every, it, we've got two options: we either let everyone develop. This uh double diffuser, or we ban, say, the Frick system. So that's the two options for the governing body. When there's an innovation, you say, oh, Well done, you've got your head start, but everyone else is going to do it. Or we go, Okay, well done, use it for this season, it will be banned next season. And we're spending a lot of time kind of deciding how you would do something like this. Obviously, the question is, Should you? <laughs> and, and I think, No. Jason in the live chat, has just quite simply said, surely the best way to have better racing is to have stable regulations. You're very much preaching to the choir here. We've seen quite a few regulation sets where the teams start to catch up and it's looking very close and then suddenly there's a a new era of regulations and it spreads the field out again.
1: I think the Williams um, aero push came to a sort of head around 92, 93, didn't it, when Mansell won his title in 92 and was doing like records that were very similar to what Mercedes were doing, where they almost got every single pole. They almost got every single win. That was the height of Mansell mania. And then Prost was the following year, wasn't he? That was his fourth world title. Neither of them were, um, young stars at the time, shall we say they were geriatric in formula one, uh, terms.
3: Yeah, well yeah yeah, Mansell was um yeah, that was that was at the end of his natural the end of his natural career if you like. Matt. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well and let's all remember that the reason they are looking at this and I believe that, you know, DRS technically is a movable aerodynamic device that is allowed that opens and closes the wing. What most likely they're looking at is using adjustable ride heights at the corners to help the teams with porpoising we're already seeing another regulation change we're seeing the floor edges raised by 15 millimeters to help with this but the fundamental issue with any ground effect car is that the prospect of porpoising always exists if you can't control the ride height sufficiently and one easy and inexpensive way to do it now is by allowing teams to mechanically hydraulically control that right height which amounts to movable aerodynamics so before we get too crazy let's see what they're actually really talking about would be the only thing i'd say
3: no let's react to the headlines i didn't even click on any of the articles i literally just looked at the headlines (laughs) and then the outraged comments in all the replies on twitter so the last one of how would you do this before the, the should you do it, the the how you would do it. Surely movable aero is the most complicated way. Isn't just knocking out a, an engine cylinder or something, isn't that an easier way to do it? Just like cut down on the revs, reduce a little bit of horsepower. What? Why fuel is flow. Fuel flow, that's right. And yeah. no team has ever got around fuel flow restrictions, so that'll be fine. Steve?
2: Um, I read in um, motorsport.com that when they first started to think about bringing this system back in, it was to actually help reduce the fuel usage of the cars during a race. And I've I've just got to say, what an absolute complete stupidity that thought is. They're buggerizing around trying to save three or four litres of fuel per car Mm. when in fact... You know, it's all part of their, you know, green philosophy and carbon neutral philosophy. When, in fact, I did some calculations between the flying and the boats this year, they did 200,000 miles around this planet getting teams (laughs) and equipment to the various, you know, venues. Surely they can you know, if they want to save petrol, they should be looking at their scheduling, not at bringing in another piece of technology stuff to save three or four litres of fuel on a car.
3: <laughs> Matt.
0: I, I, I just love your inventiveness coming up with a word that Spanners isn't sure if he's going to have to bleep. Or
3: yeah, not. I'm, I'm I'm Googling it right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. It's, it's the Aussies and the Danes, man, they're, they're, they are so free with their language.
0: Indeed. Mm. But the reason they want to use less fuel in the race is because it makes the cars lighter. The reason they are looking at biofuels and synthetic fuels is they're trying to reduce carbon footprint, and they are a laboratory that can be used to explore before wider adoption of technology. So I get your point. We'd save a lot of fuel if Formula One only raced at Silverstone, for example, because all the stuff would be there (laughs) all the time and we wouldn't have to ship it anywhere, would we? But the reality is is that it's a bit of propaganda, but there's also a bit of realism in it, too. Mm.
3: Uh, if they're going to do this, and they definitely shouldn't, then I like my engine nerfing idea. So you just reduce the power a little bit somehow. And you wouldn't have to reduce it like a dangerous amount, just enough to let people catch up a bit and then... You click the button off and they disappear off again, rendering the whole exercise somewhat pointless because it's kind of what the teams do anyway because they're afraid of safety cars. You know, Teams don't burn up their tyres and burn fuel building up a 50-second lead anymore like Schumacher used to because if there's a safety car, it all gets wiped out. You've got old tyres or you have to pit again and you've used more fuel. So the whole whole exercise does feel a little pointless. But if you're going to do it, which you shouldn't, then do the engine thing. And then also add sensors and monitors electronically around the track limits of every single track that you're going to. And then every time you go off track, you reduce the power a very small percentage for a few laps. And that is your punishment. Baked in, and it's only going to reduce you to the point of, say, I don't know, three cars down the grid, slower car. So I don't see a safety issue. You put all four wheels off. Suddenly, you're not a Ferrari anymore. You're a, you're a has for a few laps up front, and that's your punishment. Good. I feel like we've solved a lot here, Matt. To be honest.
0: Yeah. Well, mm. you know,
3: it's all speculative anyway,
0: so that's what makes it so much fun.
3: <laughs> oh, more speculation coming up right now. <laughs> okay. Um, one interesting topic that has uh, that always gets you and me debating matt is the future of women in motorsport so you and i've had a fierce debate i think we agree probably on 95 of of things i think the thing we agree with more than anything is that women who want to pursue motorsport should have as fair a shake of the stick uh, at it as men do. Um, yep. But So there's a few things that have kind of come out recently, and I think it was, it was prompted by the FIA saying that perhaps they should move to power-assisted steering in F2 and F3, in much yep. the same way that Formula One has power-assisted steering. One of the really interesting uh, comments to come out in the last couple of years was Alonso describing how his steering, he found it too loose, so he had to stiffen it up, and they can just choose the amount of strength and feedback they want in their wheel
0: uh Raikkonen had this famously issue as did I think Ericsson too very sensitive to the feel of yeah. the steering and in Formula 1 because it is power steering yeah a lot more goes into engineering it to be the way the driver to give the driver the feedback they are seeking
3: yeah. and, and and all sim races will have that same feeling because obviously there's no real force in your wheel it's all artificially manufactured so you choose the amount of feedback the amount of strength in the wheel that lets you detect the oversteer, the understeer, and, and gives you that feeling in your hands. So whilst Formula One at the pinnacle of motorsport has has this option to pick the difficultness of turning the wheel, the Junior Series cars don't. And Chris, you're more of a Junior Series expert than I. It does seem weird that, that kids come out from carts into these cars with very stiff mechanical steering. Then you go to the pinnacle of motorsport and you've got power assist.
1: Well, Formula One is obviously the pinnacle of motoring technology as well. Whereas the racing ladder is designed to be a bit more old school, a bit more mechanical, a bit more pure, quote unquote, uh, and a bit more just just a bit more basic. Um, so the the focus is fundamentally on driving skill. Uh, and that is obviously the point of it being a spec series and using spec engines and Mm. spec tires and spec chassis uh, and things like that so that really the only difference the teams can make is in the setup and in the strategy so that most of the focus goes on the actual driving because that's what we're trying to develop in these junior single seaters
3: okay so if there is in the the junior series a, a physical strength requirement uh, yes. the, the statist- so there is, there is that. So st- statistically, the, the thousandth strongest man in Colchester is going to be stronger than the thousandth strongest woman in Colchester. So that bar is harder to achieve for women. So I think like most post pubescent athletic men will be able to crank a wheel in a, in a junior series, even if only for a little bit. But we've had Brad say that in F four, he found that physically demanding in his twenties. And he's a very he's a fairly fit, strong, athletic driver. So obviously fewer women will pass that bar for strength. And so it seems strange to have that, that limit when the the point of it in F1 wouldn't have that same physical limit. So that that's yeah. the disconnect for for me, Matt. And I, I just I saw a lot of people sort saying that they shouldn't do it and that if you can't handle it kind of kind of kind of tough that's a bit of a filter and i could accept that i think if formula one had this specific strength limitation obviously you've got to be fit and you've got to be conditioned for the sport um but it almost seems like if you can do it i think it's money is the main issue if you can do it not doing it is creating an artificial barrier for for women in motorsport
0: yeah and you've not even talked about the fact that the tire size has changed which has made the problem worse in terms of the amount of strength required, because the tires are bigger and heavier, and it takes more strength, therefore, to to turn the wheel. And interestingly, so anyone who wants to argue, oh, it should be, you know, you should have to be tough enough to do that yeah. in order to get to Formula One. Well, we've seen women in IndyCar, for example, which does not have power steering, be successful. And in fact, um, Tatiana Calderon actually did some races before her sponsorship, Rocket fell through which we'll talk about a bit later when we get to williams um but there's no reason and especially maybe f3 the cars are lighter and 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 so presumably less strength is required but certainly f2 being the precursor to, to f1 should be as similar as possible I don't see any argument there other than just them not wanting to swallow the cost. But given what they charge the drivers, I think they Mm -hmm. should just
3: suck it up and go ahead and add the system. I think um, also just to to be clear, obviously, there are women that have been successful in many forms of racing. So clearly, a woman can do that. And there are some women who have that physical strength. My concern, if if you want, if you like, is just that a woman would have to be in a higher percentile overall in terms of just pure physical strength than a guy would be. So it's, um, it's a it's a barrier to overcome that women have that most men won't have. So so it, there's, I don't see the argument against it, Chris, unless mm. you want to say, well, we'll keep everything separate and segregate it. So in the W Series, they used a, a lighter steering rack, I believe, and it was Jamie yeah. Chadwick's comments, the, the W Series champion, that, I can't remember the quote exactly, but she was saying that it was a concern going up the ladder that the physicality of some of those cars w- would hold some women back.
1: And of course, there are, I think, more inherent issues with the equipment that is used in motorsport that has never really been designed with women in mind. And so when they say, oh, let's you know make this fit for the average racing driver, they're going to picture a man. So there's something in the chassis design and in the overalls they wear um, as well that have been cited by um, women racing drivers uh, that is uncomfortable to them and is stopping them you know being uh, in the in their optimal condition for them to race hard and and mm. you know get the most of their ability um out of what they are given and when you consider as well you mentioned it earlier the price that they're paying to get into these junior single seaters you know it's a it's a pretty penny and uh, you know we can sit here and talk about spec this and spec whatever it's a conversation we've had before on this podcast about how the junior formulas are ridiculously yeah. expensive at the moment
3: let's uh hear from another uh old white man about this topic no look uh <laughs> somebody said yes there's a panel of men <laughs> Mist Apex in 2022 has had more hours of, of of women on the panel than we've ever had, and that is something we will continue to work on. It just so happens that this panel is, yes, populated with uh, with us gentlemen. Sorry, Steve, please continue.
2: Um, I'd just like to point out that these days Formula One has a stated interest in developing technologies and using technologies that are directly relatable to streetcars, you know, with power units yeah. and all of those things. <laughs> Can anybody tell me one modern streetcar that doesn't have power steering? There isn't any, as far yeah, as I know. So, in that's quite place, a good all, point. <laughs> yeah. All open wheel cars should have power steering. End of story. So,
1: Formula Two is actually saying that in the next generation car, which is coming in 2024, I think, is going to be more tailored to women in that they're going to design it for both men and women. Uh, mm. racing drivers so it's 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 not like oh we're going to d- suit it for women and the men have to struggle it will be designed for yeah. both and of course jamie chadwick who who made the comments and the quote that you cited um there is going to indie nxt uh next season which used to be indie lights right so like the series two. IndyCar. thank you for explaining that
3: i've been too afraid to ask all week like oh i should know what that is so that is okay right
1: it's like this weird rebrand they just did where it has to sound more extreme like nxt i don't know why um but um is nxt a sponsor i have no idea but um and that of course does not have power steering so it'll be interesting to see how she how she uh gets on there
3: okay well matt i think we just just head off one thing quickly john um, says, "I don't buy that the obstacles in the cars are built without women in mind." And I think I think this is actually a really important point to to note. I don't think that there was a kind of an active like, "Let's make sure that women can't drive these cars." Mm. It's just been that there's been this natural default for so long that there was just no reason to consider uh, the physicality of, of women in general, uh, or or to design it around women. Same in the astronaut program. You know, women in in NASA found that there was no spacesuits that that fit fit women's needs. Um, so now I think it's just a little bit about changing that default and going, okay, instead of going, let's design the, this around the default demographic that we've had for, for so long. Let's just design this around humans to allow as many humans as possible to go racing.
0: Oh, I think I have a good analogy for that, if you'll permit me, thanks to my wife's clothing background. Have you ever seen a woman try to put on a pair of men's jeans no okay it's it's a difficult thing for them because certain aspects of their body are different fundamentally to men and so when we say the car is built for men what we mean is the spec chassis which all the teams have to use was designed around putting a guy in that cockpit and not designed around the idea that either either sex might wind up in that cockpit. And and Tatiana Calderon, who is the only woman, I think, to ever race F2, possibly.
1: The modern era of F2. In the yeah. modern era.
0: um, Had specifically made that complaint. Things like they couldn't get the pedals to the point where she could get the leverage she needed to get the force on the brake pedal to stop the car properly. And that when you're talking about tenths of a second, between first and tenth, or tenth and twentieth, then then those those little details really do start to matter. And it's a bit of a disadvantage if they can't get the stuff where you need it to make it work right.
3: Yeah, and look, yeah, it, there are some things that are inflexible, even in karting. And uh, I, 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 okay, I will share this, is that yes. when I go karting, right, you, you, the seat moves and the pedals move, but the steering column doesn't. And because I've got disproportionately short, like, T-Rex arms, I can only have the furthest forward setting on the seat which means that i have kind of a baked in oversteer every time because the you know, my weight is is more forward so yeah but before we fix all the the stuff with women can we make cart steering columns adjustable on rental carts as well that would be that'd be let's make that the priority uh steve
2: um when we're talking about other things that you know disadvantages for women um are modern open wheel chassis and cockpits um Wide enough to be able to uh, accommodate i mean women have slightly wider hips than men. Is there enough room in, in a modern cockpit to be able to yeah. you, you know uh, mold wider seats that that more suit a woman 's physical requirements? I think
0: this was one of the complaints is that that much like getting George Russell into the previous year 's Mercedes, it was a challenge yeah. because of of who the who it was designed around. That, that all of these, the, the pedals, the steering, everything, there's not enough adjustability within the size of the cockpit to allow women and men to have the same mm. bespoke setup. How about that?
3: It's, it's just amazing from a, a man's perspective. It's it's stuff that we have not had to think about my whole time watching F1 and being into motorsport. And, and it just feels like it's a really positive step forward. It's an issue that we had not even considered. I don't think this has come up really before on Miss Apex either. So the fact that they're taking that initiative, and I think it is inspired. I think W Series has done a lot of work showing that there's a lot of women who are really good racers. Jamie Chadwick turning into a little bit of a star and the outcry that there's not this baked in ready seat for her um, has made people start to think about it and just remove some of those defaults. And I think we're probably never going to have a grid of a a 50-50, and uh, and you can argue about the societal reasons for that i think the pool of people who want to be racing drivers will probably always be higher on the on the man, on the men's side uh, but to just remove barriers to make it so that when you do get women who are talented in racing they they don't have any obstacles that men wouldn't have so they're not they're not you know they're not given obstacles simply by the fact that they're women uh chris end the end the topic for us
1: Yeah, so, of course, the other thing that Formula One has announced was, of course, the F1 Academy, um, which was aimed at a slightly younger demographic Mm. than what W Series was able to um, graft and um, a little bit more entry level with sort of Formula Four style uh, machinery. And from what I uh, understand, there is no shortage of funds for that, which was obviously an issue that W Series has faced this year.
3: Good news. Well, a team that has been short of funds in the past uh, was Williams, as they were spiralling on their uh, their decline towards the end of the Williams family era. But are they finally on their way up? So, they have relatively new uh, owners in the form of DeRolton, who are... I don't know anything about them. So, one of my panel can tell me everything about Duralton and, and remind me. I'm, I'm going to assume that's probably Chris. And then, someone can tell me all about their brand new racing driver from America Land. And in the most racist way possible, I'm just going to assume that that's Matt who will tell me all about that. <laughs> so, so, Chris, uh, we'll <laughs> kick us off. Kick us off. Uh, Williams, money, success, prizes. Yes, well, yeah, of course, M-
1: Doralton, as you mentioned, big investment company, making quite an investment in Formula what One. What they the
3: like? Because, of, of course, the last kind of big faceless investment company that came into Formula One was probably Genie, Genie, uh, with uh, oh, Genie, yeah. with, uh, Ge- with Lotus.
1: Jenny- Genie. Genie, yeah, w- e- with, with
3: Lotus. And that was obviously headed up by Matthew Carter um, or, or, or was as the front man turned team principal. Uh, but... This is the first time we've seen kind of an investment company come in. So, who's behind them? Is there a is there a shady mastermind pulling the strings?
1: Um, oh, I forget, but wasn't Jos Capito quite a senior figure at, um, oh, in yeah. uh, Doralton at, at some point? I might be, I might be way off the mark, and it was just someone with a similar name um, because, of course, he yeah. was uh, running rally teams um, as well. So, but I think uh, no, yeah. but. Thornton, you know they're not they're not just treating this as a sort of just pick up and 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 go. You know there's proper investment in that team uh, now, and of course they've been sort of riding the back of Nicholas Satifi's money, Roy Nassani's money um, as well. So they haven't been short on funds, and of course they've just landed a few mil with this uh, this Rocket Court deal. Okay, who's that? Who are Rocket? Rocket. Well, you may you may know Rocket from you know sponsoring a, a lot of other different championships. Uh, they've been the title sponsor of the Venturi Formula E team now Maserati. Um, they are a big sponsor of Nicholas Hamilton as well, Lewis Hamilton's brother in the British Touring Car Championship, and they do just about everything. A lot of esports stuff. Have you ever watched any of the races? Um, esports stuff. They're a major sponsor uh. in in that as well. They're every, You can't go into a motorsport series now without seeing something sponsored by. Rocket And of course they had a title sponsorship deal with Williams for the 2020 season, which ended rather abruptly before the season even started. And they got rid of the sponsorship before, obviously it was a delayed start to the season back then. So this all happened during the COVID lockdowns and they took them to court for breaching their contract.
3: Off the top of your head, does anyone know how much a BTCC season is? Ballpark? Um, Oh, I had a... big uh, tens of millions uh,
1: In ten millions? no 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 no. no. Oh, th- okay tens of thousands
3: okay well the reason i ask I, I say that is because i just googled lewis hamilton's net worth and this is probably always under reporting 285 million why why does his little brother need a a sponsor i'd like to think i'd chuck my little brother some a few, a, a, a mere few tens of grand to oh, to Maybe he doesn't him. want it no oh, maybe maybe you're right um okay so does that spell success and glory why have they got then what i understand to be a pay driver coming in why don't they
1: well logan sargent is not a pay driver in the traditional sense is he because he know. finished fourth in his maiden season in formula two so he's a which good he's no driver. mean fee. he's a very good driver don't okay. get me wrong is he is, is he
3: paying for his williams seat
1: um i mean well everyone is bringing every bit of money they have to the the team so uh, uh, no I don't think he's buying his way into the seat in let's say the same way Nicholas Latifi was one thing they did want to do of course was hire from their own driver academy which Logan Sargent was a part of bearing in mind that a lot of options for them suddenly disappeared when Fernando Alonso decided he was going to jump ship from Alpine because they lost a potential uh, deal with Oscar Piastri,
0: yeah, and I would agree. The interesting thing to me about Doralton is is the way they try to put their other clients together with the teams to to so so that they get deals with like cloud computing with with things that you need for modern Formula One teams. And to my memory, there was definitely someone who was formerly from Pirelli that was part of Doralton and and, and may have been one of the reasons they were looking at Williams. But I think Sergeant. I mean, we'll see how he does, but clearly he's there on merit. He's earned the points for his super license. Williams needs a driver and he qualifies and is part of the driver academy. What I'm really interested in is the fact that I think Williams is, is going to be running fully funded because, you know, that's not an insignificant amount of money to a team. 26 million pounds, which is, I think, the judgment that that they got against rocket in the end, but that they are running close to fully funded under the cost cap, and we've seen them make progress this year in terms of scoring points. I'm not sure we're going to see them winning like they were back in the nineties just yet, but i'm 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 very curious to see where Capito and his team take them now that they have the money to start being a real formula one team again
3: uh, do, hang on sorry oh. do, do they have enough to max out the cost cap because that would, yeah, that's the do. key they do okay
1: i think i'm pretty sure Haas was the only team this year that wasn't able to actually meet the budget cap um but uh apparently they've got a title sponsor for next year that is going to bring them up to the um cost cap but of course there's so much outside of the cost cap that you can still spend money on that equates to performance uh so it it's not just a case of oh well, they're running at the budget cap therefore there's nothing to improve there's a lot to improve uh, uh evidently because williams has been sort of tail ending the field for some time uh now and i think having two quite strong drivers there yes um logan is is going to be a rookie uh, but i think he can learn a lot from alex albon and uh, can learn a lot from the team as well there's clearly a wealth of experience there that he's going into and um I, I do think that he has the raw talent um there. They obviously have spotted something in him they they like. Um his speed, I don't think is anything to be, you know, snuffed at. And it's gonna be about, you know, smoothing out the edges, um, so to speak. A bit like sort of Red Bull's um policy where so long as you're fast, we can do something about the rest of it. You know, you can be like super smooth and consistent, but if you're not fast, we can't add lap time to you or take lap time away, as it were.
2: Well, the thing that I find most interesting about um, Williams, uh, uh, and I think Sargent will be a really good fit at Williams. The thing I find interesting is that people seem to have forgotten he's the first American driver in an American team in Formula One. I think Williams, wow. because of their name, well, they are—they're owned Ooh. by an American investment company. And Steve, Steve, Steve
3: you're breaking— American you're breaking so many British hearts here. It's like, the, the, the thing is, it's still oh, on, technically
1: a, a British on the entry, in the same way that you know McLaren might be owned fifty whatever yeah. percent by the Bahrainis, yeah. but they still play yeah. the British national anthem when
2: they win. Yeah, <laughs> the same as. As Stephen, what's his name, karate kid thing, has a Russian passport. Yeah, but he's not Russian. Yeah. I mean, let's face it; they they may still be on the on the sheet as being an English team, but they're owned by Americans, and and is an American driver, and. Um, as much as uh, Haas would like to think that they were going to have the first American driver and you know in, in an American team, I think they've been beaten by Williams. Okay, so and, and I'm saying that I'm a huge Williams fan; that they were my hero team when I got into watching Formula yeah, One. Yeah,
3: you sit and troll and call them an American team. How dare you, Steve Amy? How dare you? So he's, he's finished fourth in the Junior Series. On the face of it, is that is that is that really that? Imp- Impressive, Chris, and and what yes. I'm, I'm, I've been googling furiously, and I think his granddad is a billionaire, as far yeah. as I can tell. So, look, this is a this is a billionaire in in Formula One. It excites me less than a non-billionaire in F one. But,
1: but you know what? It, um, I don't think the family actually puts that much money into his racing career. Because oh hello, here he? we go.
3: He's going to be. I'm not rich. My my parents are rich. He's one of no, those. No, no. Is he?
1: No, I'm serious, because he didn't. He finished um, second or third or something in his first year in Formula 3, that big, epic title fight with Oscar Piastri and uh, Theo Porcher in 29... No, 2020. 2020. Yeah. And then he ended up doing another year in Formula 3 because he couldn't afford to go to Formula 2. So there was some sort of budgetary issue then. And, um, you yeah, know, he certainly made made the most of what is his first year in Formula 2. And I cannot emphasize enough how difficult it is to make an impression in your rookie year when all oh, okay. the other drivers have got a year on you. And that's not Felipe Djokovic, who won the title this year, was in his third season. Taylor Porcher was second in the championship. He was in his second season. Liam Lawson, I'm fairly certain, was in his second season as well. And these are all drivers running with, you know, good teams in formula two
3: so why aren't the fact they that he
1: won races and yeah. f- you know put a good show in there as well
3: so why aren't Drogovic, Porcher, and lawson in in f1 then
1: Drogovic isn't in there because no one really cares about him he was never part of any f1 junior academy um at all and i think the fact that it was his third year in formula two meant no one really paid attention when he did start quote unquote dominating the championship um teo poor is a real shame because he's part of the Sauber um, Academy, which means there's really only two seats available for him. One of them's taken by Guan Yu Joe. The other one's taken by Valtteri yeah. Potas. So not a whole lot of room there. And I think they were trying to get him in um, into somewhere else. If something came up, but we all know is not good enough to be fast. You need to have good timing. Um, as well. Just ask Oscar Piastria to wait a year for his chance. So, maybe 2024 will be Terry Portia. okay. Uh, Yeah, and Liam Lawson, well, Red Bull have got zero confidence in any of their junior drivers, apparently, because they keep bringing uh, other people from... I mean, they put Nick De in the car, rather than any of their own junior Uh, drivers. They clearly don't trust
3: any of them. Yeah, after Perez got the second role at at Red Bull as well. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Matt.
0: Well, the interesting thing to me... Is do you know whose car he will be driving to get extra Formula One miles? You know, I don't know things.
3: You know, I don't know things. Just tell me things.
0: That's why you're here. He's going to be driving an old Alpine on some Formula One circuits. And why do I bring this up? Well, you know. I don't know, Matt. Tell me. It's kind of interesting to me when we're looking at the 2026 power unit regulations. I mean, Williams and Mercedes certainly have a reasonable have a reasonable relationship right now. But I begin to wonder if, if we're not seeing signs of a potential switch to a Renault power unit for Williams. Because, I mean, they were going to put Piastri in there, and now Sargent is running in their car. I mean, they're getting awfully friendly. Uh, that's what I'm saying. I've been waiting for weeks to start this rumor,
2: basically. <laughs> Fair enough, Steve. It, it wouldn't be the first time either. I mean, Williams and Renault have a long history together oh yeah no of course they do yeah and we we all remember it (laughs)
3: yes (laughs) right um so lawson not getting to get into f1 so no aussie in formula one next season until at least barcelona when ricardo replaces perez inevitably so (laughs) i'm wondering though is there room in the australian hearts for valtteri bottas
1: sorry sorry liam lawson is a kiwi
3: Oh, is it? I was looking at the... Sorry, I looked at the table that someone posted in Slack and I thought it was an Australian... Oh, that's poor flag recognition from me. Sorry uh, to... I'm I'm assuming both Australians and New Zealanders are offended by what I just did. So sorry to everyone involved. But could the Australians take Valtteri Bottas into their hearts for next season? If you look on any of his social media, I believe his partner is Australian. Oh gosh, have I got that right? Yes. So... Um yeah so he's he did a video with his partner where he went and got a, a mullet and was dressed as a as a as a as I assume you looked in your early years Steve it was a, it's a really funny video go and check out his instagram i think it's all over twitter as well uh, but could you embrace Valtteri Bottas into your australian hearts i believe he lives there in the off season
2: well i didn't know that he lived here well, welcome down under valtteri if that's mm, the case i think so um, yeah but, 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 could I embrace him? No, I'm Aww. sorry, I don't think so. I, he, he can put on as many VB t shirts as he likes. <laughs> and for those people that don't know, VB used to be a very, you know, popular brand of beer in Australia. For <laughs> oh, ooh,
3: right, I see. But a uh, Bogan's. Okay. So Bogan. okay. I I've Bogan had, beer. you know, we've actually had that term in emails insulting some of our Australian panelists. Not gonna say which one, but not you, Steve. Uh Chris.
1: <laughs> are you are you implying that the Aussies would not embrace Oscar Piastri because they deem him to have ousted Daniel Ricciardo from McLaren.
2: Oh, no. Um, I believe that the um, Australians will get behind him. I'm going to get right behind so. him. Oh, I mean, I, f- I love Danny. Um, and he's a great driver, but he's going back to Red Bull, so I'm going to burn an
3: effigy of him out the back later. <laughs> I forgot I forgot Piastri is Australian as well. I don't know. Yes, he is. Oh, I've got a bit of a, a blind spot to our Antipodean friends. Yeah, this week. I, I apologise. Um, but I've got a little bit of time to edit this before you like, all wake up, so that's, that's fine. Um, let's see, what time are we on? In the off-season, we... Uh, are doing a weekly show and i think we want to keep them really to the strict hour i know you had some teammate battle stats for us matt but why don't we put that in our pocket for for an off-season show
0: I won't feel bad about the 20 hours I spent developing statistics. No, Well, but that's,
3: that's interesting off-season statistics for the off-season <laughs> nerds who still consume content like we do. And and I hope you'll keep uh, listening throughout the off-season. We've got uh, some really interesting chats lined up. So we're going to be doing some of our magazine show format pre-records where I just catch up with someone for, you know, 20 minutes. It's easy to get hold of their time. And then uh, a single Australian worker stays up all through the night and mashes them all together into great episodes so this week we're going to be uh talking to a uh, a specialist youtuber about wet weather driving and going to be talking to a former f1 team strategist as well to give us his view on the 2022 season so you can look forward to that next sunday and steve uh are you social mediaing yet oh you have i know what you do you have sock accounts so that no one knows it's you but you lurk you lurk around?
2: Oh, uh, I have absolutely none, and with what's going on with Twitter at the moment, I'm I'm absolutely have no interest in it.
3: Okay, and uh, what's your Mastodon server? No, <laughs> no. Okay, no, fair <laughs> enough. Okay, no, well, no, no. So you can't follow Steve anywhere. So you'll have to go to New Zealand or Tasmania or wherever he is. Um, Slack? Oh, you can you can speak to Uncle Steve in Slack if you are a patron. Patreon.com forward slash Missed Apex Uh, there's going to be a patron pod at some point as well because I want to update our patrons on why on earth I'm in Spain and lamps keep falling down around me and you can follow little baby mapper Chris Stevens Uh, first place you've got to go and listen to Chris is by checking out last night's iRacing stream round three of our championship uh, You can Steve, Chris's commentary and Steve's broadcasting skill is the main reason to watch that but you oh, can wow. also watch me fluff from second place to around ninth in race two and you can uh, you, if you've ever seen somebody give up uh, places easier than I did when I was going to get disqualified for having too many incident points please email me and let me know so uh, you can see me doing quite well for a few laps and then embarrass myself for the second half
1: and then, when you're at it, go and follow me at Chris on Racing on Twitter and Instagram, and and keep an eye on my 2023 plans because they're shaping up Ooh. very, very nicely
3: indeed. Oh, that's exciting! I uh, can't be happy for your success because that might is that mean less missed <laughs> apex.
1: Uh, likely yes because Ooh. when does most of what happen happens on a weekend so
3: we'll, we'll grab uh, we'll grab you more for midweek roundups and for pre records and get you doing some of those interviews as well absolutely and uh, matt trumpets at matt pt 55 still yep all right good yeah mm,
0: that's that's where i use that's what i use for all the platforms so can
3: just look for me. we watch you in real life soon
0: um i might have a concert on december 17th um i do have if you're on long island want to come out to the telecenter on monday or tuesday i'll be playing with an orchestra doing like a christmasy pops kind of deal so you could come say hi there i think the tickets are free so
3: you know there you go not a
0: huge not a huge investment
3: go and follow everybody by clicking on the show notes below and this panel that we've got on here is actually the kind of the workhorse and production crew of the Mist apex project so uh, if you don't know uncle steve does all our quality video and graphics and makes us look all shiny on youtube chris stevens is our pr guru if you're surprised at the correct spellings on the missed apex twitter account for example that's Chris Stevens. And a lot of the show notes, prep and show running is done by the magnificent Matt Rumpit. But you should still follow me on Twitter at SpannersReady and find me, Richard Ready on Facebook. Either, Although I am currently remembering how to log in. I have absolutely no idea what email I use for that account. Similar problems for Instagram as well. So just find me on Twitter or email us feedback at mistapex.net. We will see you next Sunday. Until then, work hard. Be kind and have fun. This was Mr. Apex podcast.